Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Welcome to this episode of the RISE podcast. My name is Yue Hua. I'm a research fellow with the RISE program, and today I'm speaking with Jen Oparikumi, who's a final year doctoral student at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Jen and I talk about a study that she conducted on how teaching at the right level in Botswana affects children's mental health outcomes. And along the way, we get into many exciting questions, like tricky issues around measuring squishy things like mental health, what happens when you talk to parents about their children's mental health, and classroom teaching that is so exciting that people actually ask for more math lessons. Welcome to the RISE podcast, Jen. Thank you, Yui. I'm so delighted to have you here. And I'm looking forward to this conversation for many reasons. And one of those reasons is that, you know, we've had research from RISE Ethiopia looking at socio-emotional learning alongside academic learning. Mm -hmm. We have work in progress from RISE Vietnam researchers looking not only at academic outcomes, but also non-academic ones like executive functions, self-perception, independence. And we also have your RISE working paper about foundational learning and children's mental health in Botswana. But we haven't had the chance to discuss any of these on the RISE podcast. And I realize I've just thrown around a lot of terminology about various aspects of children's well-being and development there. So to help us set the scene, what exactly do you mean when you talk in your paper about mental health? Thank you, Ayi. That's a great question. And thank you for inviting me today on the podcast. I think sometimes we use social emotional learning, non-cognitive outcomes, which you've mentioned a few, mental health and well-being quite interchangeably. So when I speak about mental health in this research study, I'm using WHO, the World Health Organization's broad definition of mental health, mm -hmm. which looks at a state of well-being in which individuals realize their own potential, their capacity, can cope with the stresses of life, can work productively, and are able to make contributions to their communities. And similarly, the Lancet Commission of Global Health looks at mental health as an asset or a resource that enables positive states of well-being. So we see how mental health can really be encapsulating of the potential, the human potential, um, our ability to access that. And so I think when we think about mental health, what has been helpful is to classify it a little bit into two different buckets or classes, thinking about externalizing mental health symptoms, which would be your disruptive behaviors, inattention, hyperactivity, and internalizing mental health symptoms, such as anxiety, depression, and trauma. And often we hear more about the internalizing mental health symptoms or problems rather than the externalizing ones. But they're all, when we talk about mental health, they all include all of these symptoms. Mm -hmm. Great. That's really useful background, Jen. And I think the the concepts you've started to flag for us already suggest answers to this next question that mm. I'm going to ask. But so I just wanted to get into the fact that, you know, we have so many efforts now to improve children's foundational learning. And why alongside these efforts is it really important to shine an additional spotlight on mental health? So or another way of putting that is what's the connection between children's mental health and their academic or their cognitive learning? Yeah, so in this research study, I think 
it's straddling a line between research and advocacy for more attention to children's mental health and mental mm -hmm. well-being, uh, especially after our worldwide collective experience of COVID-19. We can all, in general terms, experientially talk about our experiences of mental health or being in good mental health or well-being. We, sure. we can understand why that's important. And academically, I think we need to to catch up in terms of the the global public goods that we have as uh, as research outputs in, in terms of what public um, policymakers, I would say, look at when they think about investing in, in different areas and development. And global children's uh, mental health is an area that is under-resourced, under-researched, underfunded. So we know currently the evidence shows that 10 to 20% of all children and adolescents have some type of mental health challenge. And even more devastating in that is that 90% of the global population of children and adolescents actually live in low and low income and middle income countries. Mm -hmm. So in the global south, the majority of our children will have some kind of mental health challenge as they grow up and as they develop. Mm -hmm. a, a, a recent study in sub-Saharan Africa showed that one in seven children had a significant mental health difficulty, and this covered depression, anxiety, disruptive and reactive behaviors and disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder. I think this area highlights the intensity of resource investment that is required to ensure that all children grow up uh, healthy and with a sense of overall well-being and life satisfaction. Great. I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that that might go in a couple of different directions. So the background to this follow-up question is, as you know, I come out of the RISE thematic synthesis team where mm. we talk a lot about how it's really important to prioritize foundational literacy and numeracy as the reason that a fundamental shared reason across education systems, regardless of social cultural context. And also because when you have complex systems, complex social policy delivery, prioritization really matters. But as you're saying very clearly, you know, as I know as well from my only two years of classroom experience, Factors like mental health can have such extensive knock-on effects. Right. And it's really hard to tell what might be a binding constraint. And in some settings, this may well be a binding constraint. So I'd actually like to, this might be a leading question because of my biases. I hadn't actually thought before you mentioned it about externalizing symptoms right. as a part of mental health. Because I would just think of those, I'm used to thinking of those as like disruptive behavior yeah. and Classroom management is something I struggled with a lot as a teacher. Mm. So could you help connect the dots a little bit now that my long preamble is over about sort of classroom learning and specifically externalizing mental health symptoms in the open system that is the classroom setting? It's so challenging, right? Um, in classrooms that I've been in and observed and teachers that I've spoken to, um, typically what you would maybe remember also having experiences that these um, quote-unquote difficult children are classed as such and almost ignored in the classroom setting so the rest of the children can get on with the learning of the day. Um, teachers are under a lot of pressure, of course, to get through their syllabus and good time and make sure everything is done. And if it's one or two children, those children, maybe um, there is a learning difficulties uh, teacher or school lead that the teacher then thinks, you know, 
I'm doing my best. But I'm going to assign so-and-so and so-and-so to, you know, to, mm-hmm. to this um, learning difficulty school lead because I just don't have the time. I just need to get on with it. Um, but what we see is that these externalized mental health problems link back to academic success or the lack thereof. And that links back to more internalized uh, mental health difficulties such as trauma, um, anxiety, depression, which knocks back on to academic indicators of, of success and learning. So you can see the cycle is so connected and linked that I think it's leads us to think about how do we use um, ongoing CPD, continuous professional development that is already underway? Is there a way to incorporate uh, an awareness, uh, skills, tools to support teachers to better identify and support these learners um, to ensure that some of these, these issues and difficulties can be reduced or stopped before they progress. And some of it is not overly complicated. There are multiple uh, interventions that happen in schools because we are all invested in children learning. And the argument I'll make today is that these interventions with children in schools can be leveraged for other outcomes that support children's holistic development. And that leads nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, actually, which is so the fact that one thing that's being discussed quite a lot in the intersection of education and international development now are targeted instructional programs, which have been found to be quite effective in improving foundational literacy and numeracy across quite a wide range of contexts. And in the paper that we're here to talk about today, you look at one such program, so teaching at the right level in Botswana, and you find that it had positive impacts on children's mental health. So can you tell us what this program did? Um, your findings about children's mental health, and also, out of my personal curiosity, why you wanted to do the study in the first place. Okay, so this is a multifaceted question, so <laughs> I'll try to take it piece by piece and feel free to interrupt me at any point to ask for more detail or maybe even less. So uh, in terms of this research study, what I wanted to do was leverage an ongoing intervention in Botswana, teaching at the right level, as you just mentioned. And I believe the listeners of the podcast would be familiar with this intervention. Um, But for maybe for new listeners, I I can make a very brief introduction. Um, But teaching at the right level is a targeted foundational numeracy and literacy intervention, which has been backed by multiple evaluations and proven to improve learning outcomes. improved learning outcomes in multiple contexts, as well as multiple delivery models. And by that, we mean whether it is the teacher, uh, volunteer, facilitator, each time the intervention improves learning outcomes. And um, the innovation really here is is a simple one in that uh, when we think about how children are typically learning in in basic classrooms, is that they're grouped by their grade level and not their learning level. So teaching at the right level says, you know, why don't we group children guided by their level of knowledge rather than their assigned grade and target instruction um, in a fun and interactive way for a set period of time. And, you know, through this um, regrouping and assessments and targeted instruction, children learn foundational skills and are numerate Mm -hmm. and literate. So in Botswana, this intervention is being rolled out uh, in collaboration with Young Love, now called Youth Impact, and the Ministry of Basic Education. Um, 
who have all committed to adapting and scaling teaching at the right level in all primary schools in Botswana. And previously, I um, was the research lead and program uh, manager for Youth Impact, where I was supporting to scale teaching at the right level in all primary schools in Botswana. And in that role, I had the opportunity to, to chat and observe multiple students, teachers, parents, um, Ministry of Basic Education officers. And one thing was becoming very clear is that one, teaching at the right level works and you mm-hmm. can see it. And it's such an inspirational thing to see children that have over and over again, parents have maybe lost a little bit of hope because they're really struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, teachers also feel slightly exasperated with not knowing how to support this child with their current um, set of tools that they mm-hmm. have to explain certain concepts. And in comes a pedagogy that really, I think, expands the options, expands the options in in our communication style, our teaching style, the way that we bring students into the learning process. And we could all see this happening. And it's it's such a nice thing when what you see is confirmed um, with rigorous evaluation and, you know, <laughs> measurements as well. And I, I think we've spoken about this previously before. It, it is it's so satisfying that what you intuitively know is also confirmed by, with evidence. And what you hope to be true and possible exactly, in the world. Exactly. It's so hopeful. So as that was happening, what I was also observing is a certain level of confidence and comfort with the students. Students were eagerly and easily raising up their hands to respond to questions. Mm-hmm. And this is no small feat in a, in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure you can attest to this as a teacher. <laughs> yes. um, but usually we have all the kids that are super confident and know the right answer that raise up their, their hands. But in a tall classroom, even kids that don't know the answer and are probably wrong still raise up their hands because they want to participate. Mm. This is so incredible this Mm -hmm. is actually this is game changing for Mm -hmm. learning Mm -hmm. um and that the facilitators are not just kind in their tone but also inviting of children to try even when they're wrong and their other peers are supportive um when the student is wrong and also offering um their responses but not in a way that brings down the students that was wrong so there were many things that were happening in that classroom that we were observing that hadn't been systematically um evaluated documented mm-hmm. and in speaking to um teachers as well they were saying you know children seem happier to be to learn they want to learn they are more confident um, they they just want more of Tal, which actually means they want to more of learning. <laughs> they want more <laughs> classes, um, which I mean, I don't know the last time you spoke to a primary school student, but no one says I want another math class. <laughs> but they're saying I want another Tal class. So this really inspired me to want to understand more systematically what was happening in these Tal classrooms. Was there anything that we could um, more rigorously evaluate outside of the learning outcomes. We already know teaching at the right level improves learning. Fantastic. But is there something else that's happening which would be so beneficial to understand um, because it would help children 
beyond their academic success, but actually life success in terms of their developmental indicators and outcomes. So I really set out to understand, you know, are there any other, are there other mental health outcomes that maybe we are, we are overlooking? And it's such an opportunity to understand this in the school setting, because if we can replicate this, then we can, we can do this in other places as well. So I was really excited by that notion that something else could be going on. And I think, the the basic hat of a researcher is that curiosity you know we want to ask these questions we 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 observe something we think about what we've read in the literature and we're like okay I think this is a gap let let me go investigate that and that's what happened in that moment in a classroom looking at a very eager young child answering questions happily interacting with their peers and I just thought to myself you know what else is going on I would love to find out that's super exciting. And what did you find out? Oh, great. Thank you for bringing me back to what did I find out. So what I did is I worked closely with one of the education regions in um, Botswana called Northeast Region, specifically the city of Francistown, where I worked with 15 schools that were implementing teaching at the right level. And the way that they were doing that was um by classes. So for example, class 4A is doing TAL and 4B is not doing TAL in term one, but in term two, 4B will be doing TAL. So in each school, I had treated, quote unquote, treated schools, the schools that were implementing teaching at the right level and control schools, schools that were yet to implement teaching at the right level. So I was able to compare these at baseline and at end line. I used what's called a difference in difference methodology. And what I do find is that there are meaningful differences between mm. the children that are in teaching at the right level and those are that are yet to be exposed to teaching at the right level. The kids that are in teaching at the right level have significantly less emotional and behavioral difficulties compared to the kids that are not yet in teaching at the right level. And I found that so hopeful and really the tip of the iceberg for multiple mm -hmm. studies to similarly want to use a battery of instruments to test this. Great. That's that is, as you say, so incredibly encouraging and promising. And you just mentioned a battery of instruments. So that points to something I want to get into next, which is measurement. So I think a lot of what you've said just now um, points so strongly to the fact that in this complex world that we live in, things are bundled, right? Learning outcomes mm. and mental health are bundled together. Interventions like TARL, which might be called targeted instruction, um, involve a lot of other things. It's not just the targeting and the differentiation, but there's bundled together with tools and routines and educator peer networks and coaching that facilitate joyful pedagogy. Mm. Um, but because of, you know, limited human working memory, etc., sometimes we do need to parse out specific elements of these bundles. And measurement is one area where that comes up, right? So, and... I guess I'm interested in two areas of that parsing out from the bundle and measurement. So one is that in your study, you use two psychometrically validated screening tools for children's mental health. Um, and your enumerators collected both student self-reports and teacher observations about students. So from the sort of evaluation point of view, I'm curious to just hear your thoughts about how difficult it was to do all this measurement of mental health and how satisfied you are with these tools for measuring mental health in the field, in the real classroom, in the, amid the mess of the everyday. 
Um, and the second part of that is that I think another domain where we often need to kind of pick things out of bundles and try to standardize them is in global monitoring and advocacy, mm. right? So besides the first area of evaluation, second area is, I'm just curious, could you foresee a convergence to some kind of universal baseline benchmark for children's mental health systems? The way, you know, we have infant and child mortality rates as baselines for public health systems. And there seems to be a growing consensus about certain measures of foundational literacy and numeracy as a baseline for the learning part of education systems. Mm -hmm. So any and all thoughts on this messy area, welcome. Yeah, so before I get into the instruments, it just occurred to me when you were talking about teaching at the right level again, that um, in India where it originates, uh, Pratham also call it Kamal, which is an acronym, but in Hindi also means magic and wonder. So it's it's such a wonderful precursor to what we are finding as well with all the things that Tal can be. Um, but thinking about measurement, I think it would be wonderful to have some sort of repository of measurement tools that are tailored for lower and middle income countries, for global south countries, for low resource settings. Mm -hmm. um, and then this study, as a doctoral researcher, I wish I had, you know, more resources, more manpower, a team <laughs> um, to spend a very long time doing this. But I did the best that I could with what I had and um, spent a, a decent amount of time looking out for various tools that had good psychometric properties. So thinking about validity and reliability measures um, that were relevant for my population use. So making sure that it wasn't uh, a tool that was used for an adult population, but was relevant for young people and had a feasible scoring protocol. So, you know, these, these were basic guiding principles, but more so uh, what was really important was a very systematic back translation and loads of piloting. So um, speaking to lots of children, testing it out, speaking to lots of parents, testing it out. And what is interesting as your piloting tools is a little bit of, I think, an unintended outcome that I found in the study is that the parents were telling me that, oh, Jen, I didn't actually realize that I could speak to my children about some of these things. I didn't realize that I need to ask my child some of these questions. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that I don't know the answer to some of these questions regarding my child. And I think even in of itself, that is a valuable outcome for mm -hmm. the communities that I was working in. Because again, with expanding the options, which I think is so valuable in any context, is giving whoever you're working with, more tools to engage, whether it's with a student or with their child. Yeah, having having language to articulate and understand our realities matters so much, right? But yeah. what about on sort of the global comparative yes. level? Is this a domain where having a narrow measure will be useful because it can focus attention? Or how does that balance yeah. against the trade-off of, you know, the whole Campbell's Law thing of if you make a measure a target, it becomes a bad measure? Right. But we, we need to know what we're measuring in the first place and if it's something that's important. Um, so it is a catch-22. But I will say that I think a lot of this will be driven by big funders. Um, from the what I know 
about some of the big funders are driving the use of common mental health metrics. So the Wellcome Trust in the UK, the National Institutes of Mental Health in the US are really pushing to standardize mental health measurements just for the for the general use of being able to compare, to being, being able to understand where increased investment is needed. Um, but I think this then becomes valuable at a local, regional policy level where we can use those same tools to also understand where we invest um, local resources, where we, we realize that maybe there is a capacity gap and um, where we can reach out for more support. So I, I do understand the trade-offs and the limitations, but we have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it'll be fascinating to see along the way what sorts of social cultural differences in conceptualizing right. mental health emerge as these discussions continue to happen. Well, Jen, the final question that we ask all guests on the RISE podcast is, mm. what is one thing you wish other people knew about education systems in sub-Saharan Africa? Thanks, UAE. So I interpret your question a little bit as a call to action. And I think the quote-unquote crisis of learning that we know to be affecting millions of children worldwide not only limits their quality of education, but also what I've argued for today is their holistic development potential. And in Africa, this crisis is, of course, compounded by the lack of context policy relevant data on young people's mental health and well-being as well as their education outcomes. So in this context I think more research is definitely needed in reclaiming this learning crisis, highlighting the need for policy reforms, prioritizing pedagogic approaches which facilitate holistic learning and development, particularly in Africa. And I think overall we really need an increased and genuine South-South collaboration in research. Thanks, Yui. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jen. And here's hoping that many people rise up and respond to your call to action. Well, it's been a pleasure, Jen. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.